Please turn to Romans chapter 3. I am a, a father and I have three children and I try to teach them the Word of God daily. I especially try to teach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I'm communicating God's truth to them, I look at their young minds and their young hearts and the plea of my own heart is, my son, my daughter, for this moment in time, give me your heart and your mind. That what I have to say to you, well, there is nothing of greater importance. Absolutely nothing. And I look at you today. And I say, give me, give me an hour. Because I not only want to share with you the scriptures, I want to share with you the most important message of the scriptures. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, we know that. No. No, you, you don't. You don't. Even if what you know is true. You do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, you live in an age where we have taken the glorious gospel of our blessed God and reduced it down to a little track with a few spiritual laws or five things you need to know about God. Or you went through one discipleship class that showed you how to evangelize and you think you know the gospel. Let me tell you this. Well, let me ask you this. What do you think is the greatest, deepest truth in all the scripture? Some people would say, well, Obviously, the second coming of Jesus. No, obviously not. On the day that Jesus Christ returns, you'll understand absolutely everything about the second coming of Jesus. But you will be an eternity of eternities in heaven and you still will not have wrapped your heart or your mind around what God has done in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I graduated from seminary, some of my professors said, Paul, we think you need to go on to get your PhD. But I was headed to the mission field. I wanted to be a missionary. But I thought they asked me this question, if you could study anything for your PhD, what would you want to study? And I said, I want to study the gospel. And they said, oh, that's been done. No, it hasn't. I'm 50 years old. I've been a Christian for about 29 years. The last probably 15 years of my life, I've spent countless hours, hours a day, studying the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not even close to comprehending the beauty of that gospel. And so I want to talk to you today about the gospel. And I can assure you, you're going to hear things that you've never heard before. I can also assure you this. Many of you 
who are genuinely Christian don't even understand the very core truths of the gospel because many of the people who preach to you do not understand them. The gospel has been lost in American or Western evangelicalism. Everyone wants revival today. You know, in church history, do you know when revival occurs? When the gospel is rediscovered. When men stop teaching creedalism and cliches and return to the gospel. The only thing that's going to create spiritual, lasting spiritual life in you is the gospel. You know, most of these types of things, you get excited for a weekend, you get fired up, and then after about a week, it all dies down. I don't want that for you. I want you to know the gospel. So before we read our text, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do what men cannot do. What speakers cannot do and what hearers cannot do. Illuminate our hearts and our minds that we might understand, comprehend something of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us in such a fashion that we will know we have been helped to glory in Christ that all the vain things that charm us most would be sacrificed to His blood, that we would fully follow Him. Lord, help these students to hold their attention. Lord, help us. Give me wisdom. And Lord, I know apart from your spirit, I'll be nothing more than a seething demonstration of flesh. Please, Lord, don't let that happen for your sake, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of these these young people. Lord, give us grace in Jesus name. Amen. Romans three twenty three, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Some of the greatest preachers throughout the history of the church would tell you this, that I just read the most important passage in the Bible. They call it the Acropolis or the strong city of the Christian faith, that in this message, we have the gospel revealed to us in a way unlike any other place in the scriptures. Did you know that? That this passage Well, many would say if I had to lose all the Bible and could only hold on to one passage, it would be this one. Yet you've read this many times, but have you understood the significance, the magnificence of this message? Let's begin and go through it, because in it we're going to find the core of the gospel. He says, for all have sinned. Now, I notice something about you right now. You're not trembling. You know why? Because you don't really understand sin. 
And do you know why? Because you don't really understand God. You see, sometimes I'll talk to seminary students, even preachers and such, and I'll say, when you were in Bible college, how many of those four years, how many years did you dedicate to the study of God, the attributes of God? And many of them will say, well, uh, I took one theology class one semester and we studied the attributes of God for a few weeks. I go on to seminary students who are getting their masters. In your master's study, how many years did you study the attributes of God? Well, we studied all kinds of things like evangelism. No, I don't want to know that. How much time did you dedicate to studying God? And then I'll ask preachers and ministers. In your life now, you've had 15 years of ministry. How many of those years did you dedicate to studying the attributes of God? And they'll go, I don't even know what you're talking about. You see, the greatest knowledge, according to Jeremiah, rich men shouldn't boast in their wealth and wise men shouldn't boast in their wisdom. Strong men shouldn't boast in their strength. But those who boast should boast in this, that they know who God is. Yet we don't. And that's why we can't understand the gospel, because you don't understand who God is, that he is not like us, as he says in the book of Psalms. And he views sin in a way that is very difficult for us to understand. God hates sin. And he comes with a fury that no one can comprehend against sin. And listen to me, against the sinner. We'll talk about that a little more, but let's just talk about this. For all have sinned. You have sinned. The word means as, as in archery, if you were shooting at a target and you pull back the bow and let the arrow fly. And it, it not only doesn't hit the bullseye, it doesn't hit anything. It's to miss the mark. It's to fall short that God has a righteous standard. And that righteous standard is basically his attributes, who he is. We're supposed to act like him. And his attributes, his character, his nature is revealed to us in his law. We are to understand and obey his law. We have not. We have not. We have violated God's law. We are sinners. To put it in a cosmic perspective, I want you to think about it this way. On the day of creation, God commands stars much greater than the size of our own sun and tells them to put themselves in specific places in space and they all bow down and worship him and obey. He tells planets to move into certain orbits and they all follow his word precisely. He tells mountains to be lifted up and valleys to be cast down and they all bow and worship and cry out amen. He looks at the great sea and he says you will come to this place, this is your border and you will not go past it and the sea obeys. And then he looks at you and says come and you go no. That's why the prophets speak that even on the day of judgment, all creation will stand against you. And listen to this. Cry out for your condemnation. You have sinned. The old Puritans used to say it this way. Listen to me. You have not violated the rule of some little mayor of a country town. You have violated every law. 
of the creator and sustainer of the universe. Why is sin so bad? It's not necessarily even the pain that sin causes creation. Sin is bad because it's committed against an infinitely good God to whom you owe absolute loyalty. Think about this. Adam and Eve take a bite out of a fruit. And it takes all of creation and throws it into absolute chaos and condemnation. Why? It wasn't because they ruined a fruit. It was because they rebelled against God who is deserving of your utmost loyalty. Now, I want you to think about something for a minute. People don't talk about sin a whole lot, not in a serious fashion. Even preachers today. But isn't it amazing that the book of Romans is the closest thing we have to a systematic theology in the entire Bible. I mean, it, it, it's a compact. It's what Paul believed. He's writing it to the church of Rome so they will later on send him to Spain as a missionary, possibly. And isn't it amazing that in these 16 chapters explaining what Paul believed, he dedicates basically the first three chapters to what? The doctrine of sin. Why would he do that? Because you see, you can't understand your great need of salvation apart from understanding your depravity. You can't appreciate what God has done for you in Christ. Unless you understand literally how vile we are, not only before a holy God, but before a holy creation. And that's why the doctrine of sin is so important, especially in this generation of entitlement. That we are deserving, we are deserving of this and we are deserving of that. And creation calls out and says, no, you're deserving of one thing, eternal condemnation. And we will applaud on the day when God judges you and sentences you. You see, you can't understand that. If I were to walk up to a millionaire and hand him a bologna sandwich, he would think, would he appreciate it? He, he can buy a restaurant. What would he do with a bologna sandwich? But there are places in the third world where I have traveled and I have lived where if I handed someone a bologna sandwich, they would fall down on their knees and weep and kiss my hands because they were starving. You see, this is the same way with the gospel. You can't appreciate what God has done for you in Christ unless you know how holy and just and good and loving God is and how depraved, wicked, vile, sinful you are. That's why the gospel is so offensive, because it rains on everybody's parade. Everybody's walking around affirming one another and the gospel says, no, you're all wrong. You know that passage in Ephesians where it says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then it goes on talking about how we deserved all condemnation, but God and the great love. In which he loved us. Well, let's look at that dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead in the sphere of your trespasses and sins. Now, let me try to let you get an idea of what this means. This is you he's talking about. 
this is me prior to conversion, prior to becoming a Christian. Imagine a rotting corpse. A filthy, putrid, rotting corpse at the bottom of a cesspool of excrement that came out of the corpse itself. That's what he's talking about. And then imagine the love of God that the sinless Son of God would wade into that cesspool and take a breath and on the cross plunge head first into your filth and drag you out. That's what it means. All have sin. You see, every religion in the world has a, a big problem. Because there are really only two types of religions in the world. There's a religion of do this, do this, and do this, and you'll be saved. And the other religion is a religion of grace, which is the only way you can be saved is by grace. Because these other religions that teach a works-based religion, they have to do one or two things. They have to make God lower or make man higher. You see, if God is absolutely perfect, then one trespass on your part destroys the relationship. So what we've got to do is either we've got to say, God's really not that concerned about evil and sin, and he's pretty much okay with it. So therefore, we can have a relationship or we have to say we really haven't sinned and we're not that bad, so we're acceptable to God. But Christianity says, no, you're wrong on both counts. God is absolutely holy. And you are absolutely vile. And the only way you can be saved is through God and his mercy, his grace, his work on your behalf for all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Now, in our humanistic Christianity in America, to fall short of the glory of God, basically, in all those little tracks, say something like this. God had a great plan for your life and you blew it. God had a glorious thing he wanted to do with you. Because it's all about you. But that plan failed. That's not what this means. Fall short of the glory of God is not man centered. It's theocentric. It's centered around God. It means this. God made you for him. For his glory. And you've not done it. You have lived for your own glory. My dear friend, do you not realize athletics is built upon that? Now, it doesn't have to be. If you turn on the television set and by and large, when you see somebody win a medal or a trophy, it is not theocentric. It is man centered. I have done this. I have achieved this. I worked. I got this. I did this for me. Win this. You see, that is the great problem. That's your problem. That's my problem. Even as a Christian, the remnants of that battle remain putting ourselves in the center of the universe. And when we do that, we are absolutely miserable. Miserable. 
That's why people who seem to achieve absolutely everything they set out to achieve many times commit suicide because they've done it all and they still have no meaning. Why? Because you were not made to be the center of the universe. You were made to worship Him. I love the, the, the quote about Eric Little. He says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. I run for him. I run for his glory. Now, a lot of people can write that on the back of a Christian T-shirt. It's quite another thing to actually have that in your heart. In your mind. You were made for him. For Him. That's it. Not for Him and. Not a conjunctive relationship. You were made for Him. And you will only find meaning when all of you are given to that purpose. When everything you are is thrown to that loyalty. And that's why the Bible says if you go off and live for your own glory or do some halfway Western Christianity type thing, and mouth God's glory, but basically live for your own, that you are a biblical proverbial fool. God says this in Isaiah. He said, why, why, why do you esteem man? Why do you esteem man? All he is is a nose full, one nose full of breath. So you are a great athlete. You are a nose, one nose of breath at a time. You are a vapor. Your young, strong bodies will one day be your enemy as they hurt you and limit you. You are passing through a stage of youth for only a few moments. And then you will be old. Having used all your strength for your own vanity, and wasted the gifts that God has given you. That's not right. That's very, very foolish. So we have sinned and we have paraded around on this earth for our own glory. Not only have we rebelled, but we have gloried in our rebellion. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory But then he comes to the turning point in verse 24, speaking about those who have faith in Jesus Christ. He says something very important, being justified as a gift by his grace. Now, before I can get to justified, I need to get to one other thing that's a rather dark problem, and it is this. I was speaking a few years ago in Europe and the, it was at a university and the whole crowd was they had come there to uh, to eat the Christian. Barbecued Christian that night is what they were supposing they were going to have. And the whole crowd was basically unbelieving, atheistic, and everything. And I, I was back praying and I said, Lord, I don't mind going out on the platform and becoming a martyr, but I don't want to be a martyr for no reason. Help me to talk to these students. Because they were all expecting me to come out and talk about a Puritan God who throws people in hell and all sorts of things. And they were loaded with forbear. So as I'm walking out on the platform, just something just kind of popped into my mind. And I, I, 
I walked out and I said, I am going to share with you just to, so everyone knows where we are. I'm going to share with you the most terrifying news, the most terrifying truth in the Bible. They're all kind of at the edge of their seats. And I said, some of you may want to leave. It is so terrifying. But I'm going to share with you doctrinally, theologically, philosophically, the most terrifying truth in all the Scripture. So they're all waiting. And I say, here it is. God is good. And I could see kind of going through the crowd. Some people were snickering. Some people were going like, and what's the problem with that? Finally, someone said it. I said, God is good. And they said, well, what's the problem with that? I said, here's the problem. You're not good. Now, what does a good God do with someone like you? You see, everyone talks about a utopia. Everyone talks about heaven. They want to go there. You can't go there. None of you. Why? Do you know, just think back at how many lies you've told, how many people you've hurt, how self-centered you've been, how many relationships you have ruined. When you get married, some of you are married, and think about how difficult it is for you to even exist in the same house with your wife. And you're going to take all that into utopia? And what's going to happen? It turns into Dante's Inferno in about five minutes. You see, here's the problem. God is good. So what does He do with you? You're a liar. You're self-centered. You choose self every time. What does He do with you? Let's take it a little step further. What does he do with Hitler? If God's good, what does he do with him? You say, well, obviously Hitler, judge him, judge him, judge him. You just condemned yourself. Remember, it was only one act of disobedience that throwed the entire world into utter chaos. And you've committed that act of obedience millions of times. You've committed the same sin countless times that has resulted in the death of everyone who's died on this planet. You've committed the same sin as Adam. So what's he supposed to do with you? That is the great problem. That's what the Bible and the Gospel's all about. If God is good, what does He do with you? So now let's look. Verse 24. Talking about us as sinners, now He comes to those believing in Christ and He says, being justified. What does it mean to be justified? It means more than just simply you're forgiven. What does it mean to be justified? This is so important. Words are important. What does it mean? It's a legal or a forensic term. A legal term. To justify someone is to declare them to be right in the eyes of justice, in the eyes of the law. 
to declare them right. So what does it mean? Let's look at Abraham for a moment, because this statement is made about him, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was declared right before God because he believed God. You see that? So before we go any further, let's stop here for a moment and talk about this. The difference between Christianity and all other religions. Really, if you took a contemporary or comparative religion class with me, it would actually be quite simple. Why? Because there's only really two types of religions in the world. I've already said it before you. There's a religion of works and a religion of grace. Christianity is a religion of grace. All the other religions are religions of works. Okay? Now, let's just look at this for a moment. Let's say that we have a, a, a Muslim, we have a Jewish man, and we have a Christian. A real one. Which is a rare bird. But a real Christian. And we ask the Muslim, we're a reporter, we say, sir, if you died right now, where would you go? And maybe he would say, I would go to paradise. Why would you go to paradise? Well, I love the Quran. I have kept the five pillars. I've made the pilgrimages. I've said my prayers. I've been to the mosque. I am a righteous man. What is he saying? I've done these things that are required of me so as to earn or gain a right relationship with God. We go to the, the, the Jewish man in Paul's time. If you died right now, where would you go? To paradise. Why? I love the Torah. I love the law. I meditate upon the law. I seek to obey the law. I keep the stringent rules of the Sabbath. I do all these things. What is he saying? He's saying basically this. I have done what is required of me to gain a right standing before God. Now again, in both of these religions, we've got to do one of two things. We've either got to make them a lot better than they actually are, or we've got to make God a lot lower than he actually is. Because neither one of these men will say that they're without sin. They will say that they have sinned, but yeah, I'm, I've sinned, but I never killed anybody and it's really not that bad and I've done a lot of good things to outweigh it. So they're making themselves not as bad as they are and they're lowering God saying he's not as good as he says he is. Again, go back to the fact that the entire creation was thrown into chaos and condemnation through the sin of one man, Adam. And yet these men themselves have sinned far more than Adam did in that first time. But then they come to the Christian. The reporter comes to the Christian and says, sir, if you died right now, where would you go? And the Christian says this, I would go to heaven. Well, why? And the Christian says, well, in sin, I was conceived and brought forth. Throughout the days of my life, I have violated every law of my God. And I deserve condemnation before a holy and just and loving God. And right there, the reporter stops him and says, sir, hold it. No, 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 hold it. These other two guys, I understand. They say they're going to heaven because they've earned it. They've gained it. God owes it to them. You're telling me with a smile on your face that you're going to heaven, but you deserve condemnation. How is it that you're going to heaven? Where is your virtue? Where is your merit? And the Christian smiles and says, I'm going to heaven 
founded upon the virtue and the merit of another, Jesus Christ, my Lord. You see, that, that the Christian is the only one who can actually say he has a hope of heaven without being proud. He's the only one who can say he has the hope of a right relationship with God and at the same time debase himself. Why? Because all his hope is wrapped up not in what he has done to gain something before God, but all his hope is wrapped up in what God has done for him in Christ. So that the commandment is fulfilled, let him who glories, glory in the Lord. Not unto us, O God, not unto us be the glory, but unto you and you alone be the glory. I have not, I cannot save myself. I have been saved. Perfect and passive. I did not act, but I was acted upon. I did not draw myself out of the deluge of death, but a hand reached down and grabbed me and drew me out. To Him and to Him alone be the glory. That's the difference between Christianity and all other religions. And don't let them kid you. It is. And therefore, what I want you to see is that Christianity is the only religion that takes this statement seriously. God is holy. And takes this statement seriously. Man is a sinner. Now. He says, being justified as a gift by his grace. This phrase here, as a gift, is translated from a Greek word that's used in another place in the New Testament that produces for us this phrase. When it talked about the people hating Jesus, they quote an Old Testament passage and they say this, they hated him without a cause. Now remember those, those last words without a cause. They hated Jesus without a cause. That means Jesus never gave anyone a reason to hate him. Never. No one had a reason for hating Jesus. They hated him without a cause. That's the same word used here. We were justified without a cause. Now, what does that mean? You never gave God a cause to save you. There was nothing in you and nothing you've ever done that gave a reason for God to save you. The only thing you ever gave God was a reason to condemn you. That's what it means. Let, let me put it this way, and it's going to sound really hard to your contemporary ears. You weren't worth it. He did not save you because of some inherent worth in you. Or some hidden virtue that no one else saw. No, he saw through the veneer. That you were a potential Hitler. And the only thing that kept you from it was his restraining grace. He saved you and me, even though we only gave him cause to condemn us. 
in Deuteronomy, you basically have this what we call a tautology. It's almost a, a taunt that God begins to uh, speak to Israel with a taunt. Israel, I loved you. Because. I loved you. Now think about that. Why did you love me? I loved you. Because I loved you. And what he's saying is Israel. It was nothing in you that caused me to love you. I loved you because I loved you. Because I chose to love you. Because I am loved. You see, when we talk about God, I was trying to explain this the other night in a, in a small group session. That love to us is something of an act, something of an emotion. What you have to understand is love is an attribute of God. Let me give you an example. Existence is not an attribute of yours. You have to work or labor to exist. If you stop working at it, you die. Okay, God's attribute is to exist. He exists effortlessly. He doesn't put forth any intentionality in order to continue existing. He is. It's what He is. He is that He is. It's the same way. God is love. It's what He is. Always. Even when He displays His wrath. God is love. So why did God do this for you? It had nothing to do with you. Again, the only thing you gave God reason to do was to condemn you. But he loved you. And why did he love you? Because he loved you. It was him. It was him. And see, this is why a lot of people hate Christianity. No! I mean, even people I go to churches get mad about what I'm teaching right now. No, there had to be something in me, some value. I'm more than, no, I'm sorry. This is it. It was him. It was all him, all him, all him, all him. He loved you because he loved you. But to the Christian, this is also very refreshing. If in the beginning, even before I was reconciled to him through Christ, he loved me enough to send his own son, then his love now is not dependent upon me. And I'm free. But the true Christian will use that freedom not for the flesh. But to serve him. To serve him. So he goes on being justified as a gift by his grace. Now. I'm going to present to you the greatest problem in all the Bible, and it's what the gospel's all about. And some of you have never heard this, and because you've never heard it, I'm going to be able to show that the gospel that's being preached in America today, most people don't even understand it, even those who are preaching it. I'm going to teach you a truth that apart from this truth, you can't understand the gospel, and yet this truth is hardly ever shared. Now, before I do that, I need to say this. I'm telling you, I'm going to share with you something that many of you have never heard. And yet it's the very core of the gospel that ought to scare you a little bit. 
Because you ought to be thinking right now, well, who does this guy think he is? What? He's going to share with us something. What was it? Something he discovered? I mean, some new revelation. I mean, what is it that he has that he's saying a lot of people don't even anymore? What is it? Well, here's why I want to teach you a little bit about hermeneutics before we go on. Hermeneutics is a big word we use to impress people. It is a word that simply describes the science of studying the Bible. What are the principles that we use to study the scripture in Orthodox Christianity? For example, in Orthodox Christianity, we follow a law that comes out of the scriptures itself, the law of non-contradiction. Scripture cannot, it does not contradict. Okay? But there are many other principles, like following the historical context, the grammatical context when we're interpreting Scripture. But there's a very important principle that you need to understand, and it's, it's this. When we study the Bible, we should always do our theology in the context of the church. Now, what does that mean? If I'm reading the Bible and I interpret it a certain way, then uh, how do I know I'm right? What, ask my roommate? How do I know he's right? Well, here's what you do. You go back through the history of the church and you ask, what has everyone else believed about this? And if you find that throughout the history of the church, the godliest men and women are in agreement with regard to what they believe about that passage and they don't agree with you, then who's probably wrong? You are. So what I'm going to tell you is not something new. It's just something that's not taught anymore. And yet the greatest preachers from Martin Lloyd-Jones to Charles Spurgeon to the Puritans to the early Baptist, early Presbyterian, early Congregationalist, early Methodist, they all reveled in this truth. That when I teach it today, many people come up to me and go, you know, Brother Paul, I never heard that before in my life. And I never really understood the gospel. Here it is. I want you to hold your place in Romans and I want you to go to Proverbs for just a moment. Now remember, when we interpret the Bible, we follow the law of non-contradiction. That something cannot um, mean two different things at the same time and in the same context. The Bible does not contradict. An interpretation of one part of Scripture should not contradict another. But I want you to go to Proverbs 17, 15, and I want you to look at something. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike, are an abomination to the Lord. Now, an abomination to the Lord, let me just put it, you don't need to know Hebrew here, you just need to understand this. It's the worst thing you can be. There's not really a harder text in all of, a harder word in all of Scripture. An abomination. To be accursed of God. To be considered vile and loathsome before a holy God. Now, who is this person who's an abomination before God? Whoever justifies the wicked. He's particularly talking about judges in Israel and others. Anyone who has a wicked man stand before him and he justifies that wicked man, declares him to be right when he's not. Anyone who does that is an abomination to God. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned in verse 23 and fall short of the glory of God. So all of us are wicked. 
But then what does it say that God does for those who believe in Christ? He justifies them. Now, let's put on our thinking caps. If you can grasp this, you'll understand the core of the gospel. How can God justify wicked people, declare them to be right with him and still be good and still be just? Paul will say it later on down in this passage. How can God be just and the justifier of the wicked? How can he do that? Let me let me try to put it in, in, in perspective. Let's say for a moment that um, you go home and you find your entire family slaughtered on the floor. I know it's gruesome, but I, it's necessary. And you see the murderer standing over the bodies of your dead family. And you grab him and throw him to the ground and you tie him up and you call the police and the police take him off to jail. And then after a while, he's brought before the judge. And the judge says this, all everyone in Nebraska has come to the courtroom because it is such a, a heinous crime. And the judge looks down at this man who is guilty, this wicked man who slaughtered your family. And the judge says this, I am a good judge, full of compassion and slow to anger, forgiving iniquity and abounding in loving kindness. I pardon you. I declare you right with the law. You're free to go. How would you respond? How would all of Nebraska respond? I want you to think about that. You would be calling the newspapers. You would be writing congressmen. You'd be writing the president. You would be saying there is a judge on the bench in Nebraska far more wicked than the criminals he sets free. How can he justify the wicked? How can he declare the wicked to just be right? There's another problem. Go in Romans 4. Just flip over for a second. Look in chapter 4. Verse 7, look at what David says. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the one whose sins have been forgiven by God and whose sins God has simply covered. What do we do to politicians and judges when they cover sin? When they hide it, when they don't deal with it? We say that they're wicked, they're corrupt, and they must step down, and many times they're impeached. Do you understand that? Here's the greatest problem in all the scriptures. If God is just, he cannot forgive you. And if you will grasp this one truth, you'll begin to understand the gospel. And if you don't, you won't understand the gospel. If God is a just and righteous judge, he can not forgive you. Now, I've heard evangelists say this. I've heard him say, well, instead of being just with you, God was loving with you and he pardoned you. OK, let's follow that out. Why don't they teach logic anymore in school? So instead of being just with me, God was loving with me. Therefore, God's love toward me was unjust. And again, like his love, God's justice is not something he merely does. It's something that he is. How can God deny his justice in order to show love? 
Men say they do that every day. Well, I divorced my wife because I loved her. My love led me to do injustice. You see? Because I love this other woman. You see, we do all kinds of things in the name of love. You see, here's the great problem. And Paul brings it out. If you look closely again in Romans chapter three, look at verse 26 for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier. How can God be a just God? And yet at the same time, how can he justify or declare the wicked to be right before him? There's the question. Now, let's get back for just a second to justification, and then I'm going to give you the answer to this dilemma. What does it mean to be justified? It means more than to be forgiven. It means it's a legal term, meaning to be declared right before a righteous God. So the sinner comes before the throne of God and he is a sinner. He has violated every command and God looks down at him and says, I declare you right with me. Perfectly and completely right. Remember, Adam and Eve sinned one time. If there's one violation that this person's guilty of, then they go to hell. But he says, I declare you perfectly and completely right with me. Now, not only that, not only does justification means that God looks at the sinner and declares the sinner to be perfectly right with him, but it also means that from that point on, God treats the sinner as perfectly right with him. Now, don't forget that word there. That's the important one. Treats him as perfectly right. For the rest of his life, God treats that sinner as perfectly right with him. Now, how can he do that and still be just? There are two words here in our text that help us understand it. The first is redemption in verse 24. And the second, in verse 25, propitiation. Now, Hang, hang with me. This is so important. Redemption is when a price is paid in order to set a captive free or to set a prisoner or a slave free. It is a price that is paid. So it tells us that the redemption which is in Christ Jesus made a way for God to be just and the justifier of the wicked. Now, what does that mean? It means this. Well, let's look at what it doesn't mean. Some people say, well, and I saw this the other day in a YouTube thing in which uh, they put this beautiful media production together. But the sad thing is, it was all wrong. That the sinner is there all guilty and in chains. And then because he's in all guilty and in chains, you see the devil walking towards him with a huge whip. And right before the whip comes down on the sinner, Jesus stands in the way and takes the devil's beating in the sinner's place. And because of it, the sinner can go free. That's heresy. It's not orthodox Christianity. Jesus did not pay the price to the devil in order to set us free from his captivity. Even though we were captive to the devil, he did not pay the redemption to the devil. And it wasn't the devil coming after you. So then what? Well, let's change the media presentation around. The sinner is in chains, guilty, about to be punished. 
and the Punisher appears, who is it? It's God. So to whom was the redemption paid? It was paid to God. God's justice demands that you die. His wrath is kindled against you. But the amazing thing about love is in the midst of His wrath, God is able to love the objects of His wrath and to do something on their behalf to provide for their salvation. When Christ died on that cross, He made a payment to God's justice to satisfy justice for all the crimes you have committed against Him. In one way, as R.C. Sproul says, God saved you from Himself, for Himself, and by Himself. Here's what you need to see. In His righteousness, because of your sin, God's wrath was kindled against you. In order for that wrath to be pacified, justice had to be satisfied. And justice was satisfied by the death of God's own Son in your place. Now, let's go on to the word propitiation because we're going over, but but please, this is so essential. Propitiation is a sacrifice that does what? That satisfies justice. God's justice. And appeases His wrath. On the cross, I want you to look at two things that happened to Christ. First of all, when He's on the cross, the Scriptures tell us that He bore our sin. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's beyond me. I'd have to give you ten lectures and we still wouldn't even come close to understanding it. But it doesn't mean on that tree that Christ became corrupt. He was always the spotless Lamb of God. What does it mean? It means that when He was on that tree, remember what justification is? Justification is God declares you right and treats you as right. On that tree, God took your sin, imputed it to His Son. God declared His Son guilty and treated Him as guilty. So when He is on that cross, the wrath of God is poured out upon the Son. The justice of God is demanding full payment for every crime we've ever committed. And so when he's hanging on that tree, all the sin of God's people is thrown upon his son. And when Christ is on that tree, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? You know those tracks that everybody uses. God's on one side because he's holy. Man's on the other side because he's a sinner. And there's a great gap, separation in between the two. In order to close that gap for you, someone had to die, separated from the favorable presence of God, torn away from the people, dying outside of the gate, abandoned by God's people, and abandoned by God, left alone like the scapegoat in the wilderness to die. The serpent lifted up and crushed. So Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That comes from Psalms 22 where he says this. Basically, he argues... Throughout all the history of your covenant people of Israel, no righteous man has ever cried out to you, and yet I cry out to you, your only son. 
And you have forsaken me. Why? And then he answers his own question. Because you are the Holy One of Israel and I am a worm. He became the sin bearer. Although it will be shocking to your ears, it would go something like this. Christ looks up into heaven and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God slams heaven's gates and cries back, God, your God damns you. The very thing that you should give. Christ bears our sin and becomes a curse. Have you never read in the law or even in Galatians? Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. That's you. You're under a curse. That's me under a curse. Why? We have not abided by all the things written in the book of the law. So to perform them, we are under a curse. What does it mean to be under a curse? That we are such an abomination before the holy inhabitants of heaven that the last thing we would hear when we take our first step into hell is all of creation standing to its feet and applauding God because God has rid the earth of us. But on that tree, the Bible says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He became the curse. And the wrath and the forsakenness that should have been poured out on you in hell throughout all of eternity was poured out on His Son. And when He is in the garden, He cries out three times, let this cup pass from me, let this cup pass from me, let this cup pass from me. Do you know what's going on in the garden? In order to understand what's going on in the garden, you've got to get to Luke and understand that he grew in stature, he grew in wisdom, he grew in favor with God. You've got to go to the book of Hebrews and find out that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. You know what's going on there? And this is so applicable to your Christian life if you have one. Here's, let's imagine Jesus at 12 years old. Realize, always obedient to the Father's will. He grew in wisdom. What does it mean? He grew in his understanding of what it would mean for him to redeem his people. He grew in understanding the cost. And so let's say, let's just, for conversation's sake, let's just put it in a sort of a drama. Christ is 12 years old, and it is revealed to him in part what it would take for him to redeem his people. The cost, just a part of it. And at 12 years old, it hits him in the chest like a like a logging truck. And then he goes, not my will, but yours. And he accepts it. And then he goes along, I don't know, a few months, a few years later. And then a revelation of something of what it would mean. The cost it would take for him to redeem his people. And it hits him in the chest. And he stands firm. And he goes, I accept it. Not my will, but yours. And then finally, that night before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, for the first time in his life, although he is God, he has submitted to his manhood. For the first time, it is revealed to him the full terror you will bear sin. You will be forsaken of your own father and you will be crushed under the fury of his wrath. It's grabbed a hold of him. He's sweating drops of blood. How can this be? Let this cup pass from me and then not my will, but yours. I'll, I'll do it. 
I'll do it for you and for them. And he goes to the cross and he drinks the cup. What was the cup? I've heard people say, well, it was the Roman cross, you know. It was the whip on his back. It was the crown of thorns on his head. When I hear preachers preach Easter Sunday about all these things, I go, these men don't even understand the cross. Do you honestly think that Jesus was cowering in a garden because of a Roman whip and a Roman cross? Do you not know that after he was ascended up into heaven? The gospel isn't powerless today. It's a few men are preaching it. What was in the cup? I remember asking some school children that one day in a very, very proper it was theologically reformed school. I remember a little eight-year-old girl and I said, what was in the cup? And the little girl raised her hand. I said, yes, dear. True Puritan fashion, she got up and stood beside her desk. She said, sir, the wrath of Almighty God was in the cup. Have you never read? And it pleased the Lord to crush him. The word Lord there is the four consonant Yahweh. It pleased Yahweh to crush the Messiah on that tree. You see, that's how can God justify wicked people? Because God in love became a man, took the sins of the people upon himself and was crushed under his own wrath against us. He swallowed down the very condemnation that he sentenced upon us. He proved just. He condemned sin. He proved to be the redeemer. He became a man and drank it down. This is the cross. This is what happened there. Now the question is answered. How can God be just and the justifier of the wicked? Let me say this because I won't be able to say it in my next meeting. But listen to me. For him to be the atoning sacrifice, the one who died on that tree had to be God. Why? Because the one who died on that tree is our Savior and God alone is our Savior, not a creature. He had to be God because salvation is from the Lord, Yahweh. He was God. He had to be God because only God could withstand the wrath of God. Let me teach you something about that. The Bible says that the, the rivers melt, the mountains turn into wax and run like rivers in the face of the, or the presence of the wrath of God. So how can a man, a mere man, withstand the wrath of God? You say, oh then, well, Christ was God and therefore it really wasn't that hard for him, probably. No, here's what you need to understand. When Christ hung on that tree as a man, he was able to bear with the wrath of God and not collapse in a second. Why? Not because his deity was over him, protecting him. It was because his deity was under him, holding him up and supporting him so that as a man, he might continue to suffer the full wrath of God in your place. He had to be God. 
He had to be man. But he had to be God. A student asked me one time in an audience something like this, a bit more secular. He said, how can one man suffer a few short hours on a cross and pay the price for a multitude of people and deliver them from an eternity in hell? The answer is this, because that one man on that cross was worth more than all the other men put together. You see, this is a Christocentric universe. I want you to understand that. You take a gigantic scale and you put on one side of that scale everything that is mountains and molehills, stars and planets, dusts and men and donkeys, everything you can find from the smallest of creation to the greatest of creation, put it in a scale, put Jesus on the other side and he outweighs it all. His infinite, matchless worth. You talk about no compromise. What keeps a 50-year-old man full of zeal? It's this. It's this. Look at what He did for me. Look at who God is. Look at what I was. Look at the expenditure that was made for me. That is why, young person, it's not about getting fired up. It's about becoming imprisoned. I'm the freest man in the world. I'm also the greatest prisoner in the world. Imprisoned, not by guilt, not by law, not by works-oriented religion, but imprisoned by the love of God. That's why the Apostle Paul says it is the love of God that constrains us. What else can we do now but follow him? Look what he has done. He doesn't need to heal me. He doesn't need to prosper me. He doesn't need to protect me. Everything can be taken away and I can be all but slaughtered with nothing left. And I am still obligated to praise Him and to serve Him because of what He has done for me in Christ. And then the fact that this one who died, we haven't finished with the gospel, this one who died on the third day rose again from the dead. And that resurrection, according to Romans chapter 1, is God's declaration to mankind that Jesus was and is the Son of God. It is also God's declaration to mankind that this one whom we crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Don't walk out of here this weekend thinking you made Jesus Lord. He was made Jesus Lord. He was made Lord a long time ago. You have no such power. You're only called upon to submit to the Lord He already is. Jesus won't become Lord of your life because of this weekend. The only thing that will change is this. You'll either decide to remain a rebel or you'll decide to submit that He is Lord. Think about this. This is where we'll close. Joseph is in a prison. And in a fraction of a moment, it seems, he's pulled out of the prison. He's cleaned off. He's put before the throne of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh basically says to everyone, not one finger or foot will move in Egypt apart from this man's word. Jesus was in that tomb. And on the third day, he was raised. And he ascended up into heaven. 
And he was brought before, according to Daniel chapter 7, he was brought before the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days looked down at this man, Christ Jesus, who is also fully God, and said this to all of creation, not one foot nor finger will move in all creation except by the Word of Christ. This one who died is Lord. You say, well, he was Lord before. Yes, but there's something different now. He's Lord as God and Lord as man. The one who rules the universe is also our brother. And what does he tell you to do? He most certainly doesn't ask you now to bow your head and raise your hand. He does not ask you to pray this little prayer after me. And if you pray it sincerely, you'll be saved. That's a part of American Christianity, but it has nothing to do with scripture or historical church. What he commands you to do is repent of your sins and believe the gospel. And you will know you are saved, not because some man tells you you're saved because you said the right words. You will know you are saved because the Spirit of God bears witness with your heart. You have been born again. And you will know you are saved because you continue walking and growing in Christ. And if you turn away from him, it is evidence that whatever happened to you this weekend meant nothing. I'm not calling you to some cliche to repeat a prayer. I'm calling you to recognize you're wrong about absolutely everything and then to cling to Christ and Christ alone and to let you know that the evidence that you have truly come to know him, that you have repented unto salvation is that you will continue repenting all the days of your life. The evidence that you are truly believing in Christ unto salvation is that you continue believing all the days of your life. So many of you have prayed that little prayer. Your lives have never changed. You're just as ungodly as you always were. You don't think about Christ. You don't think about serving Him. You may even come to a thing like this because it's exciting and full with a bunch of young people who are kind of nice. Are you trusting in Christ alone? Are you clinging to him? Talked to a lady in the airport yesterday trying to find my bags that didn't show up. And I said to her, ma'am, are you looking unto Christ? Are you trusting in Christ? She says, I go to church every Sunday. That's not what I'm saying. Or someone will say, I prayed that prayer. Don't worry about me. I already did that. You already did what? Get a flu shot? No. When, when I meet a person and I go, how is it with you and God? And they look at me with such a smile on their face and go, oh, brother, I'm looking unto Jesus. I'm trusting Christ. I'm holding on to Christ. And every day he's changing me. He's correcting me. He's rebuking me. He's teaching me. He's affirming me. I'm growing in the Lord. And even when I fall away, he comes after me with his shepherd's nook and he pulls me back again. I am his and he is mine. We've turned all that into. If you want to be saved, repeat this prayer after me. I'll not do that to you. I will tell you to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. And all who believe will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use this time in the lives of people in Jesus name.